1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Shana Kheshti, the author of Modernity's Ear, listening to race and gender in world music. Our conversation explores the origin of the world music industry and how the rhetoric and philosophy that guided the earliest recordings of native and ethnic sounds continue to shape world music today. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Shana Kheshti, the author of Modernity's Ear, listening to race and gender in world music. Our conversation explores the origin of the world music industry and how the rhetoric and philosophy that guided the earliest recordings of native and ethnic sounds continue to shape world music today. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you decided to write uh, Modernity's Ear, listening to race and gender in world music.
0: Uh, how did I uh, decide and, and arrive at this book? Um, you know, it's, it's been a meandering uh, kind of road to get to this project. I, I started doing research for my dissertation um, around 1999, 2000. And um, that was, of course, I think, which is the case for so many of us, you know, a very different project. And at that time, I was really interested in this feel or this um uh, genre that um was you know kind of emergent at the time known as asian underground music um and i was i was really intrigued by um what i was identifying at the time to be a diasporic sound um that was very hybrid Um, and it was very much the result of, you know, generations of diasporic people migrating and settling in, you know, the kind of, um, the, the seed of empire, so to speak, you know, and, and this is something that, um, was, was inspired in me by Paul Gilroy's work with Uh, Jamaican sound systems. Um, So when I discovered Asian underground music, I, you know, as an anthropology PhD student, I was really kind of trying to figure out how do I study this thing? Um, You know, do I, do I live among the practitioners? Do I, you know, become a practitioner? Um, So, Eventually, I ended up at a record company um, that really specialized in this music. And that's where it all really began for me. And I really started to uh, refocus my attention away from the artists and more toward the business. Um, This also coincided with me uh, kind of wearing a different hat as a musician and also seeking, you know, at that time, a career in the music business. So it was a really, um, interesting period where, um, my interests in the music business, you know, coincided at the level of an intellectual interest as well as, um, from the perspective and position of a performer. Um, so yeah, from there, I ended up working at the record company. And subsequently I um, went on to, to, to really um, rethink a lot of things because I uh, ended up as, as an academic um I ended up in a position in an ethnic studies department. So some of the burdens that I felt as an anthropologist were sort of loosened. Um, and so I started to develop an interest in, you know, periodizing my object of study differently than I think most anthropologists necessarily feel the pressure to do. Um, So from there, it became, you know, a different project, one that really was interested in um, rethinking what even constitutes world music to begin with. Um, Why do we only focus on the music industry? Um, What does ethnomusicology have to do with this? And while we're on that topic, what does... The Bureau of American Ethnology have to do with this. So it's sort of um, circled back around to anthropology, but almost as an object of study. Um, And from there, you know, I began to develop a larger thesis on this epistemological problem of how do we learn to listen? What do we hear um, and that really was a fundamentally, you know, cultural question, but inflected by politics, race, gender, etc. cetera.
1: Um, well, one of the things that you write, kind of, it's almost like the middle of your book, is you write the sentence that, that really jumped out at me. It said, we are made of music. And that sentence just kind of made me stop in my tracks. I love this idea. And I was sort of, you know, getting all these mental images of what it needs to be made of music, so um, I don't know what does that what does that mean to you, and when you wrote that, like what were you hoping to communicate?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think it, that that particular um, section of the book is really trying to understand why it is that music is supposed to bring us pleasure. Um and this is, you know, a truism in the music industry. Um, you know, most commodities are successful when they are satisfying um as consumable objects. And so, you know, the the problem um that I think the music industry has perpetually s- s- attempted to solve is that kind of problem of getting closer and closer and closer to the realism that music attempts to kind of create, you know, the fantastical world that music attempts to create. Uh, And, and that problem has been tackled in many different ways, you know, through hardware, through things like noise reduction and fidelity but also through the uh, kind of meanings that we bring to music. And so one of the particular interests that I have in, in my book is um, how do we interpret what we hear? Um, and that, that I connect to this question of, of pleasure um, by really thinking about the way that the the orifice of the ear has been imagined um, by the music industry, how it's been you know replicated in so many um, you know actual technologies, you know in particular the phonograph, which very much looks like an ear um, and mechanically replicates the function of you know the ear. But but also uh, what the ear ultimately, I argue, uh, represents within our um, kind of patriarchal system, uh, which is an orifice that that, you know, produces pleasure when something enters it. So, um, you know, I use a lot of feminist theory in my work. Um, to understand pleasure, because I'm also, you know, a a scholar of sexuality. And so I bring that, that literature um, to my interpretation of the ear. And ultimately, I, I, you know, use those ideas of, you know, sort of reproduction in trying to understand how music and sound are, Uh, media that we use to reproduce versions of ourselves that might be idealized
1: versions of ourselves well this is all very interesting and so one of the things that uh, i like about your book is it talks about how our ears are are constructed to a certain extent i mean um you know, on the one hand, ears are just sort of like the body, which for a lot of people means it's just the natural, the given. But as I'm reading you and hearing you talk, it seems you're, you're, you seem to be suggesting something different about how how we learn to hear and how these ears, our ears get constructed. So if you maybe talk a little bit about um, maybe within the world music context, how our ears have been constructed.
0: Well, you know, this this... Idea occurred to me relatively early on in my ethnographic field work at the World Music Record Company um, when I repeatedly heard the you know employees and executives at the label referring to their consumers only as listeners, and um, you know I was struck by this. You know they they you know the the notion of the consumer is is obviously very sterile. And so I initially thought, well, they're, you know, they don't want, this is an independent record label, a small record label, kind of a boutique niche place. They don't want to alienate themselves from their customers by referring to them as customers or consumers. So instead they refer to them as listeners. But over time, I kind of, I've developed a different, I a set set of ideas around that, and in particular, I um, began to, uh, especially when I started to really construct the arc of the book. I began to to think about the importance of listening over the course of you know the long twentieth century, so to speak, um, which is when this particular Uh, technique of listening, if you will, became cultivated. And I was really struck by the importance of um, archiving sound uh, as a practice within modernity. And, you know, obviously the music industry is one archive of sound. But prior to that, um, the federal government uh, took it upon itself to to really initiate this, this large scale, what we now understand to be the industrial practice of archiving sound, but in the form of what, you know, anthropologists and and ethnomusicologists call salvage ethnography or what, what we understand popularly to be song catching. And, you know, this was, this was a very important moment where, representations of Native Americans and African Americans uh, came to be, um, you know, very much inscribed and fixed in the archive uh, in ways that were unprecedented, because prior to that, these people were only represented um, through proxy, uh, either in, you know, logs kept by masters or, you um, in the rare occasion, there were, of course, slave narratives that would be dictated to um, you know, a biographer. Uh, but in the case of Native Americans, it was often um, missionaries or anthropologists who would chronicle them for the archive. And uh, this this moment of of audio recording really was the first um, moment in which. You know, we 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 are led to believe that we see real representations of Native Americans and African-Americans. And instead, one of the questions that I pursue in the book is um, to what degree are these audio recordings necessarily that different from the uh, logs kept by by slave masters or uh, the um, colonial archives that that we often consult to to write indigenous history. Um, why is it that we think that sound is somehow more real? And it's through that inquiry that led me to this question of listening that um, there's a way in which we um, we, it, you know, imagine some kind of unmediated truth, uh, when it comes to recorded sound. And, um, I think it's partially inspired by a desire for the, the listener has, uh, to, to experience that authenticity um, and I think that desire very much propels the contemporary music industry just as it did, just as it propelled um, the early, you know, song catchers, this desire for authenticity. um and and what I ultimately argue is, and I and I don't really think this is a spoiler because uh, <laughs> you know it's 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 there's a lot of um, connective tissue, of course between you know these points but um what i ultimately argue is that really what the listener hears is the listener's own desire rather than the authentic sound that they are in search of Uh, and that's what i attempt to chronicle in in the
1: book so so maybe in kind of making a link between some of those early song catchers and then what's happening in today's world of Music uh, industry is what were some of the ways in which the early songcatchers were actually mediating the sounds that they were recording, and then how do we see that sort of maybe being translated or happening or um, being re-inscribed in, in more recent world music recordings?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I think that question kind of you know integrates a lot of the stakes that that I have in writing the book. Um, you know, one thing that that the record company uh where I worked, and I call this company Kinship, but that's a, a pseudonym. One of the things that, that they are known for is is their sound, is the Kinship Records sound. And um the the company uh, you know, promotes itself through this idea that there is a coherence and sound across, you know, many of their recordings, even though the actual, um, you know, musicians on the recordings may come from very different places in the world. And I... Um, you know, even before beginning my research, I could hear that sound. I could hear that stylistic signature across these very different kinds of music. And I found that to be so curious. I, I you know, interviewing others about the, the label, they also, um, and sometimes disparagingly so, they could hear that sound. Um, and, and sometimes it would be very off-putting for listeners who were in search of more of like a, what they, what they imagine as a traditional, let's say Indian Raga, as opposed to the world music hybrid version of an Indian Raga. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm scratching my head, trying to understand how do you create and construct this coherent sound? And uh, of course, in contemporary music, you know, the, the producer is thought to be that connective, you know, that that thread that connects these different sounds. And, and that's, sure, that is absolutely um, one way of, of thinking about it. But that nevertheless still raises the question of how does the producer impart a signature that then becomes audible to the listener, right? Um. So when I started doing archival research in the uh, wax cylinder recordings made by um, early comparative musicologists, who are you know the group of of recordists that we typically associate with the term songcatcher, um, I began to recognize continuity across their recordings. I began to um, identify differences between recordings of one comparative music compared to another. And at the same time, I was experimenting with my own recordings as a part of my research. I was conducting soundscape recordings throughout San Francisco, which is where the record company is, where I was doing my ethnographic fieldwork. And listening back to these soundscape recordings while also listening to the music at the record label and also listening to these um, early wax cylinder recordings, I had this aha moment where I realized that what, what I could hear um, in my own recordings was my own experience of listening in real time while I recorded. And in addition to just sort of being conscious of the the machinery and et cetera. And so the more I started researching into the techniques used by song catchers, um, I I began to realize that, you know, song catchers were very much like contemporary record producers. Uh, Song catchers would identify a particular member of a community as the soloist who would be featured on a recording Um, or in, you know, the case of later ethnomusicology, you know, ethnomusicologists could identify a particular performer in the context of a penitentiary uh, whom they thought most um, represented the genre of uh, prison blues. Um, And so I, I, then I learned more about, Uh, Some of the limitations imposed just by the technology itself that that a cylinder can only be recorded on for such a short amount of time. And when you think about um, sacred forms of music, uh, they're typically not short. Um, Sacred forms of music that are performed in ceremonial contexts, you know, typically are quite long and uh, cylinder recordings were often less than two minutes, and so there were so many um, c- constraining limitations that the that the recordist had to uh, kind of negotiate, much like contemporary producers have to negotiate. Um, and so then I began to realize that that same signature that we can hear in contemporary recordings of the producer, we can also uh, kind of perform an archaeology of these recordings uh, from, you know, 1909, for example, or 1898, and actually find similar signatures that are present, um, which leads me to the argument that you know, the sound, the coherent sound, is, is really the sound of the recordist uh, and not the sound that we actually ascribe to the recording itself, which is the sound of the performers.
1: So as you were talking and, and, and kind of beautifully describing sort of how you came to this realization, one of the things that kind of jumped out of my mind is is there also this transformation of music from being something that was social and communal to something that becomes sort of the product of, like, the soloist or a single pl- a player? Um, and do we see that also happening in sort of the world music scene, where because it's easier to maybe commodify, like, a singer or a performer over a group, do we see some of that happening?
0: Wonderful question. I, I, I absolutely would agree that, that that's what we begin to see happening. Um, you know, we see that, uh, in general, I think, um, you know, when we, when we scale, you know, when we kind of open our frame and consider further back in popular music prior to, um, you know, audio recording as we know it today. Uh, But think about the popular forms of the 19th century, where we move into smaller and smaller spaces. Um, You know, I'm thinking of chamber music, um, which is a a very small scale version of what we saw in the prior centuries. Um, And one of the one of the reasons for this is that this corresponds with an emerging bourgeoisie who can afford to even have a chamber um, where they then hire musicians into to sort of perform in front of their social circles to illustrate, you know, their their nouveau riche, you know, sort of comeuppance. Um so as we move into the twentieth century, uh, we of course see a shift from technologies of uh, simply, you know, the the uh, score scoring of music and uh, sheet music as the predominant mode for popular music. Um, and by popular, of course, I'm talking about the music industry. As we know, popular music is not necessarily recorded music, right? Popular music is the music that, you know, the troubadour sort of orchestrates a community around. But in the music industry setting, popular music is that genre that, um, you know, has a a kind of monetary value that that we can attach to it. And that uh, in the 19th century was predominantly organized around sheet music. Uh, Later, of course, we have the player piano, which is sort of the transition from sheet music to what we understand to today's popular music. But as we move into the early 20th century, you begin to see the preference for the soloist. And, you know, there are different arguments around why this is, Um, you know, on the one hand, it's cheaper, of course, Um, but on the other hand, The technology uh, is not capable of of replicating with high fidelity the complexity of um, large-scale orchestration. So the soloist becomes the person who can stand close to the microphone and who can therefore present the highest quality sound for that recording event. And of course now, um, you know, we continue to feature that. And, you know, when, when you begin to, uh, kind of look at the popularization of world music, which, you know, really, uh, develops more of a global traction after the 1960s, you see this preference for the soloist and you, you begin to, um, see the featuring of stars, um, who, you know, without their band, of course, could not, you know, perform. Um, and so I think there's all, you know, as myself, as a musician, I've always found it, um, I've, I've always interpreted, uh, you know, the artist's relationship to this stardom, especially in the world music context, um, with a great deal of ambivalence because, you know, in the third and fourth world, uh, there's there's this sort of expectation that, you know, when a member of a community makes it out, so to speak, you know, they have the responsibility to pull up the people behind them. Um, and, you know, when you have the featuring of a soloist, I, I, I've seen in so many cases where that that becomes um, anathema to the way that communities imagine um how they relate to these figures. But, but you know, music is not an exception. In the 20th century, we begin to see this privileging of, you know, the autonomous individual uh, as colonialism really takes hold. You know, you see this radical shift that really causes a lot of, you know, crises Um, in society around the world. Uh, The shift from communitarianism to individualism. So music is just one domain where we can chronicle that emergence, but we can look at the nation state, you know, we can look at, of course, economics, um, you know, we can look at the nuclear family, which is a modern invention that privileges, you know, the kind of autonomous individual. So, yeah, I think we see in music something that is reflective of um, other, you know, social, cultural, economic, um, you know, and governmental processes. And, um, you know, then you have the formation of these stars. And these stars then, you know, they spawn progeny that then create these dynastic communities in in world music. So you can look in in most uh, world music um, traditions around the world and see dynasties forming around these individuals. And I would argue that prior to the 20th century, there was no such thing as that. Um, You know, you had musical families, but music was uh, thought to be um, it, it had a different social value and uh, economic value than it does in the 20th century. So, yeah, you see this really interesting merging of these forces in the context of the soloist. And, and kind of to
1: move kind of uh, uh, the, from the soloist back, back to the listener, because I was uh, the listener is really a, a key focus of, of your book. Um, but I think this this ties in interestingly. Is there's been a lot of writing about music that has to deal with issues of appropriation. Um, But you kind of challenge that, and you talk about the idea of incorporation as maybe being a more fruitful um, way of understanding what's happening. And I think in some ways, I think this is still rooted to this process of where uh, individuals are sort of um, disconnected from their communities and they become the focus. And so let's say, what happens to the listener when they incorporate these different sounds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by, um, how, um, diffuse world music has become in the 21st century, um, as compared to the 20th century, where it still, I think, was, uh, kind of compartmentalized, uh, you know, as very much, sort of the other music. And you rarely, you know, very, very rarely, and, and of course, we can think of the most famous examples, but you very rarely encountered, you know, this merging of world music um, with popular European and American musics. Unlike today, where, you know, it there's a, a degree of cachet that um, a world music reference brings to a popular musician in Europe or, or, you know, or the U S um, or, you know, really the, the Americas, I would say, um, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, contemporary, um, you know, psych folk artists, you know, coming out of South America who also engage in these practices. Um, so, You know, in in the book, I take up the case of Vampire Weekend, which is, you know, a contemporary band out of New York City, and they're imagined as, you know, very kind of straightforward indie rock, except that um, they're described as having Afro-pop flourishes. And I was struck by um, why and how a band, um, you know, with no obvious ties— to West Africa, um, is is kind of laying claim to this history, um, and so I, I I pursue Vampire Weekend as an example, through which I explore this idea of appropriation, and and I I start you know that chapter by by reflecting on this really interesting photograph that I used to. Um, Just kind of casually observe as I would come in and out of the office um, at Kinship Records, where I where I did my ethnographic field work. And this was a very famous photograph. Uh, It's called um, Harlem Harlem, nineteen fifty eight, I believe. the 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 name is for some reason not on the tip of my tongue right this moment. Um, But it's it's it's. It's a photograph of um, sort of some of the most famous bebop musicians in New York City um, coming together on one day in Harlem. And, um, you know, it, it, the photograph is sitting inside the lobby at, at the record label where I worked, surrounded by world music records. And, you know, I was just I thought it odd because there was no other reference to jazz at this record company, no, you know, obvious relationship to this, to this photograph. And so I began to, to really think about um, how this critique of appropriation, which has been waged at world music um, and the non world music artists who, employ world music, you know, people like Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel. um, I I was reflecting on how that that idea of appropriation, you know, if we really follow it to its logical conclusion, um, it's not a very helpful case for us to make if we're trying to advocate for, um, you know, cultural patrimony. Music is a really, really difficult medium and object with which to say, okay, this is unproblematically the uh, property of X community. Okay, music is that one thing that, you know, is very difficult to um, obviously and easily argue for such proprietary claims. Um, So, Instead, I um, begin to reflect on this photograph that I was just talking about um, as possibly Kinship Records' own um, way of reconciling their relationship to this idea of appropriation, that that really appropriation is a thing of the past. Um, what the record company that I worked with um, kind of described what they 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 described what they did as um, a a collaboration between um, you know first world musicians and third world musicians that was very much an equal exchange. So they rejected this idea of appropriation and made the argument for you know reciprocal egalitarian exchange. Um, and, and in my pursuit of that claim, um, I was also holding on to this idea I spoke to earlier about how the producer's imprint is always audible to the listener of world music. Um, and, and, you know, this is often the case with musics that are referred to as hybrid Where um, almost any listener can distinguish um, what what, what might be called hybrid world music from traditional world music. And that's because of the presence of of what are called these modern production values. Um, So, so as I begin to kind of pursue this larger question around Vampire Weekend, uh, I begin to explore how they also reject this idea of appropriation. And instead, they make the argument that they came to, um, you know, West African high life music um, very honestly through their record collections and through their parents' record collections. And it became this kind of revised story of um, cultural... Um, patrimony, where um, you know the record collection becomes the archive of culture for you know the the particular individuals in Vampire Weekend that I'm that I'm discussing, um, and in 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 building my argument, I develop upon this idea that I borrow from Sigmund Freud, um, a psychoanalytic idea that he calls incorporation Um, and Freud's theory of incorporation is basically that uh, we take into our bodies that which we want to make our own and essentially destroy another's claim to. Okay. Um, And he describes incorporation as taking place, you know, through the mouth uh, but also through the ear, and and I that really struck me um, as as you know precisely what you know what I was witnessing happening in this transformed kind of contemporary world music industry that it was no longer the case that um, you know these musics were considered traditional; they were now considered hybrid forms that that came to these um, listeners through um, noble and respectable methods, as opposed to through theft, which is typically the way that appropriation is thought of. Um, and so, uh, you know, building upon the idea of the ear, that the listener, uh, by taking into his or her body um, these sounds incorporates the um, cultural and racial and historical makeup of those sounds into him or herself. So uh, yeah, the, the idea of incorporation is, is really kind of uh, me sort of percolating the prior chapters into um, an analysis of, of this transformed sense of appropriation uh, in, in world music.
1: So this really led to me kind of one of the, the central dilemmas that I was I had as I was sort of kind of finishing up your book, which is to me it seems like is there an ethics uh, or sort of an ethical ethical rules or guidelines when a listener like myself listens to world music? Like, are there sort of ethical considerations to the kinds of incorporations that? that I should be thinking about, um, whether these are racial or gender gendered, and even, even for musicians, are are there some kinds of incorporations that are, that are too much or, or not enough, or is there ways that you can incorporate in an ethical way or an unethical way? Um, I get the impression that you've probably thought about this quite a bit. And so could you maybe share a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I, um, you know, I, I have to apologize at the outset that I don't have a great answer. (laughs) Um, I, you know, first and foremost, I would argue that um, my book is not prescribing the right way to listen, okay? Um, And it's really more um, a snapshot if you will, of a contemporary phenomenon that I'm witnessing and I'm part of. So, you know, I discuss in the book all the ways in which I too engage in the pleasures of listening. And so the last thing I would hope would be a takeaway from reading my book is the the idea that um you know, there's a right way to listen and a wrong way to listen. Instead, the the predicament that I'm taking note of is is one that's very much overdetermined. Um, and I and my hope is that by by taking note of it, um, we can begin to reflect on it, ask questions of it. Uh, find ways of relating to it differently. Um, and, you know, I, I can talk a little bit about some of my my more recent research where I am pursuing that more so. Um, but But really, my book is about, you know, the music industry and the particular practices that the music industry has promoted for, you know, over a hundred years. And I would argue that there are few of us who can claim to listen to any recorded music um, in a way that doesn't, you know, flirt with this prescribed way of listening that the industry has tailored for us. That's not to say that there aren't, um, you know, alternative ways of listening, which there absolutely are, that there aren't kind of counter publics, you know, is one way of thinking about it for these musics, which there absolutely are. But that's not what my book is about. Um, And instead, you know, what I'm interested in is um, what this kind of listening is doing for us. What is the value that it brings to our lives. And I argue that it is precisely how we imagine ourselves as modern. Um, And, you know, to listen differently would really challenge us in such a profoundly fundamental way um, that it has implications for so many other things beyond listening. Right. Um, And so in the, to my book, I kind of begin to ask this question. I begin to pursue this by, by thinking about what I call a parallel uh, kind of radical history to modernity's ear. Um, and I think about that through a set of recordings made by Zora Neale Hurston, who is um, most well known as uh, a member of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and an author, a playwright, um, a socialite, um, and you know lesser-known uh, work. Uh, she was a, a worker for the, the WPA um, in the 1930s, um, conducting audio recordings and field research for the Works Projects. Uh, I'm sorry, Works Progress Administration, um, which was a New Deal. Uh, effort that um, you know was promoted by the federal government so um, in her role as a WPA recordist she did something very very odd um, which was to record herself singing all of these uh, kind of African-American folkloric songs that she encountered in Georgia and Florida and that she herself you know had been exposed to growing up in Florida. So I began to kind of think about what, what would our listening be like if we instead had this alternative archive through which we learn to listen? Um, And I refer to her uh, practice as a kind of um, infidelity uh, which went against the the emphasis on audio fidelity that has really defined audio recording you know in the history of audio recording, continues to define audio recording and fidelity is really um a preoccupation with with realism um with a one to one relationship between the recorded sound and the and the sonic event um and and Hurston rejected this. She rejected this this desire for realism, and I, I interpret that as a rejection of the archives desire for authentic representations of African American folklore. So you know really the book ends with this quandary of you know what what would happen if we if we had more of a sense of this alternative history, um, would we feel? That we could engage in different forms of listening um, than necessarily one that uh, kind of derives pleasure from authentic, you know, representations of fill in the blank, um, you know, you know, suffering, you know, angst, anger, um, coyness, you know, uh, titillation, um, seduction etc all the ways that uh, sound can signify um, what if we had a different form of relating to the pleasure that we derive from listening that didn't hinge upon that the authenticity of the other um, and and really that's the question that i end on and i don't I, you know, I can't possibly be expected to answer that, um, and I don't attempt to answer that. But really, I try to ask that and hope that it, it inspires that question in others.
1: Well, one of the, the, the questions I did have, which is, which is um, I was also really interested in learning sort of what is happening to world music labels, really in the last like three to six years with iTunes and YouTube, Pandora, um, it seems like the whole recording industry has changed. And I was wondering if, um, um, especially like YouTube, but, but how does that even change what they're producing? Because um, I know a few points you talk about even like album covers and kind of like liner notes. And I know when I talk to my students today, they don't even know what liner notes are. Right. <laughs> so, so um, I don't know. Do you have a sense of how how this is maybe changing um, world music in general, but even perhaps even that signature style or signature sound that you were talking about earlier?
0: Yeah. You know, I I am really um, very eagerly following this trend myself, and and don't feel like I have enough perspective to really offer, you know, incisive. Analysis, But I can share some observations that I've made, which are, on the one hand, um, you know, these small scale um, boutique record companies, which, you know, there were quite a few of um, in the 1990s and, you know, early 2000s. They've very much struggled to survive in every genre, not just world music. Um, what I've observed is that those that have survived have either cultivated a kind of nuanced business model for distribution, um, and/or that is coupled with um, the sort of creation of a sense of their expertise as curators, because one of the outcomes of you know the contemporary. Uh, kind of diversification of, of music um, delivery methods is that there is an overwhelming amount of music out there. And, you know, people, especially people who aren't, you know, Sort of teenagers in front of their computers, constantly searching and searching and searching. Um, you know, people kind of grumble about how difficult it is to find music, and so one way that world music record companies have have um, sort of survived that very treacherous transition from, you know, the the CD to you know the MP three to streaming is by Um, brokering in an expertise that they then claim allows them to curate a particular kind of experience for the listener. So um, that, that boutique kind of expertise as curator is what's I, what I think is becoming um, emphasized with world music record companies in particular Um, as far as, you know, what, what are some of the ramifications of the different methods of distribution, you know, streaming, for example, um, I think the, the outcome of that is, is really where some of the most interesting and exciting aspects of world music are right now. Um, so for example, uh, you know, you begin to see, new networks establishing around the world that, um, are organized around particular genres. So, you know, global hip hop networks, um, global house music networks. Uh, and so whereas it used to be that world music was sort of like The old film industry organized around nations, you know, so you had the thing known as national cinemas. Um, World music tended to be organized around, you know, Malian music, Iranian music, Brazilian music. Um, There's a shift taking place now to genres that then parse out into specific iterations that are linguistically varied. Um, So that you have, you know, K-pop where K-pop that travels, of course, way beyond Korea um, and K-pop is 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 a complicated example. I'm sorry I even brought that up because, um, you know, we would be hard pressed to necessarily, you know, pigeonhole it as one genre only because within K-pop, you know, you do have Korean hip hop, too. So anyway. My point is that um, what interesting, you know, outgrowth of this that I'm observing is that there is kind of more of an opportunity for artists to network together um, and to reimagine genre. Um, And language seems to be playing a new and important role more so than nation state. So that's sort of something that I'm observing, especially as a teacher, you know, as a professor, um, introducing some of these concepts to my students. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating is the feedback that I get from them. Uh, and I have a very international body of students and I, you know, am just amazed by, you know, what they're listening to and how they're accessing it. Um, and so this, yeah, I'm, I'm, kind of in the process of really still, you know, trying to figure out where this is headed.
1: Well, thank you so much for, for taking uh, so much time and just really, um, just explaining and exploring the ideas you talked about in your book. This has just been fantastic. Um, but before we go, are there, is there anything that you're currently working on?
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, well, and thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and just, you know, in closing, I'll say, um, I, I have several projects that I'm working on. Um, one of them is a book project on Zora Neale Hurston's, um, media work, um, including her audio recordings, as well as, um, a number of ethnographic films that she made. Um, and I'm really interested in, you know, the, the important innovations that she was engaging in in the 1920s and 30s um, using multimedia to do ethnographic research. So that's one of my books. It's called We See with the Skin. Uh, The other project I'm working on is a book for the um, imprint 33 and a Third, which is a, a book series focused on albums. Um, and the particular project that I'm writing is uh, switched on Bach by Wendy Carlos. Um, and this is a project that um, I've been really interested in pursuing for a long time. I, um, you know, play Moog synthesizers um, and Wendy Carlos is someone who really um, made the Moog synthesizer a household name. And so I'm, I'm working on that, and I hope to have that out in early 2018. Um, and yeah, those are my two main book projects right now.
1: Well, great, thank you.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You have been listening to the New Books and Music Podcast. Today, I've been talking with Roshana Keshi, the author of Modernity's Ear: Listening to Race and Gender in World Music. This is your host, Richard Shur. Thank you for listening.